I want to talk today about the life that God created each one of us to live. Have you ever, have you ever thought about that? Uh, what was God imagining when he created each one of us and knit us together in the, the wombs of uh, our mothers? And to move towards that, I want to start where Jesus began his ministry. Have you ever thought, in the scripture lesson that Dave read for us from Matthew, are the first words that Jesus spoke when he began his public ministry? And Jesus, when we think about Jesus, we think about the Son of God, we think about his crucifixion, we think about him coming his life, his death, his resurrection as the center of the, of the gospel, which it, it surely is. Uh, but have you ever thought about how Jesus actually began his ministry? And you know, what, if, if, you didn't, if you don't know what it is already or didn't know, what, how would you have imagined that? Uh, because it's interesting how Jesus begins. Uh, he doesn't begin talking about God as love or talking about what we're supposed to believe or just about anything. He starts with a simple one-line sermon, uh, which I often wonder if that's why he was so effective, because he only spoke one-sentence sermon, so uh, no one got bored or anything when he was talking, right? Uh, uh, of course, there had to be longer, but, you know, and, and this is a little trivia, too. If you didn't know, uh, we often, we, you may have heard the Sermon on the Mount as one of the long pieces of preaching that Jesus did, but when you actually read Matthew, it says he sat down and began to teach, so this little snippet from Matthew 4 is actually the only sermon that we have of Jesus from Matthew's gospel. And so what does Jesus say? What's the first thing that Jesus speaks publicly uh, as he begins his ministry as the Son of God? And it's striking that that message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, when you hear the word repent, uh, what comes to mind? Any, any ideas? Is that like a positive word or a negative word, would you say? It's not a trick question. There's no, uh, I mean, it always could be a wrong answer, but we're not going to tell you what it is until you, you know, until you say that, right? Uh, uh, you know, it, what's repent? What, what, what comes to mind when you hear the word repent? And, you're right, you're messing up. A warning, yeah, yeah. And in general, when, when the church uses the language of repent, who is the church usually talking to? <laughs> That's right. Right, it, it, oftentimes it tends to be the message that we send out, right? Right, I mean, isn't that true? Isn't it interesting that Jesus, when he comes... Uh, and he, he, he doesn't just show up, right? It isn't like after thousands of years of humanity on earth, for the very first time when God wants to speak, Jesus, or God drops Jesus with a parachute into the Middle East, and he just begins talking to anyone. Jesus comes and does what? He builds on a history that's already been taking place, that God has been unfolding, who God is slowly through time, through what we call the Old Testament Scripture. So Jesus comes to a particular people, a people that were expecting him. And so when Jesus comes and says, repent, he's not talking to the person who's never even heard of God. He's talking to the people of God. Um, and more. You know, when Jesus came, uh, his, his greatest opponents were actually the people that were religious in his day. And a lot of Jesus' ministry was to the outside. But um, 
belaboring the point simply to say this, the core of Jesus' message is a call to repent. And I want to give a different word for that, not because we want to water the gospel down or anything, but in a way to understand what repent is really saying. What's Jesus saying when he says repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? He's saying this. He's saying realign your lives with what God is seeking to do because that great age of salvation that we've, our hearts have been longing for has actually come in the person of Jesus. So Jesus' message is, is simple. Realign your lives. And again, he's talking not simply to outsiders who don't know anything about God. He is talking principally to the people of God and saying, realign yourselves because that thing, that event, that future hope that you've been longing for has come now in Jesus, and it's time for us to realign ourselves and get about the business that God sent Jesus to unleash into the world. I don't know if anyone owns a yacht here. Um, I don't, uh, right? Uh, but, you know, when you, if, if these, these boats that are able to go out into the ocean and, uh, and take trips, the newer ones all have a GPS technology now, the Global Positioning Satellite Technology, so they can actually uh, go on to autopilot, and they set the course. So if, you know, if we're taking a boat ride to Europe or something or trying to get down to Cuba or wherever we want to go for a boat ride here from Melbourne, you punch the stuff into your, your computer, and you can kind of sit back and look like you're a great captain, but the boat will kind of drive itself to where you want to go using the GPS technology. Well, here's something that I didn't know that I found fascinating. A boat using GPS navigational system, a, a GPS navigational system will actually be off course 80% of the time. In other words, it's off by one or two degrees, but because of that GPS technology, it's able to do what? Constantly reset the course so after, at the end of the journey, you get to where you're trying to get to. That's what Jesus is basically saying in this passage. Our business isn't to try to, uh, to align at, at, at um, some fixed point. Our business is to follow Jesus. Isn't that what Jesus says? He doesn't say, come believe in me or anything. He says, come and follow me. And that means Jesus is always moving. The cross is moving. And the people of God, our business is to be about what? Constantly realigning, assessing our lives to make sure that we're still aligned to our compass point, who is Jesus. Okay, so that begs the question then, what is it that we're sp supposed to be constantly realigning our lives with or to? Why is it that Jesus came out of the blue and said, realign your lives because the great thing that God is doing is coming and is coming me? He's assuming that people sort of know where they were supposed to be, and that invites us then to, to move back into the First Testament or the Old Testament. And I want to look at a passage. We already read it, but I want to reread it. This is our Old Testament lesson, and I want to focus most of our conversation this morning around Exodus 19. Exodus 19 is one of the most important passages that some of you may have never heard of. Because in Exodus 19, it encapsulates what God's will is for everyone. Ever wondered what I'm here for? Uh, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to be a people of God? What, does it mean, what kind of life is God expecting me to live? What does God want from every single human being? Exodus 19 encapsulates that. And in essence, when Jesus comes to earth, Jesus is calling both persons who are already in God's people and people who are outside 
to come in and become part of God's people, to line up with what God's purposes were as revealed earlier in the Scriptures. Let's look at that passage again, um, Exodus 19, 3-6. And to give some backdrop, if you haven't looked at Exodus lately, the book of Exodus does what? It tells the story of how Israel, God uh, delivers Israel from slavery in Egypt and uh, brings them to Mount Sinai, which was the place where God gives the Ten Commandments and such. Exodus 19 is one chapter before the Ten Commandments are given. And Exodus 19, then, are the first words that God speaks to the newly freed Israelites. So let's hear what God says to them. And, and again, note, we haven't got it. There's no commandments here. There's more of a programmatic statement, marching orders, a picture of the life that God is inviting us to live, and that we're going to find that that's an invitation for a realignment for mission. Um, verse 3 from Exodus 19, Then Moses went up to God, up to Mount Sinai, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak uh, to the Israelites. Let's unpack this passage a little bit and picture the life that God is longing and desperately needs each one here to actually live. Wherever you are in your faith journey this morning, whether you have been following Jesus for a long time, uh, for literally a matter of, of days or weeks, or whether you're sort of on kind of periphery here because uh, you're interested but not sure if you really want to be fully part of it yet, this passage speaks to all of us and calls us, invites us, to align or realign ourselves with what God's doing. And the first thing it says is this, if you want to live the life that you were created to live. If you want to be the person of God's dreams, the person that he dreamed of when he made each one of us, the first thing is you have to remember your story, which is ultimately our story as a whole of humanity. In other words, when Israel is brought to Mount Sinai, they, they have a history already. And in their case, they have a history with God. And before God says anything about what a life with God looks like, God reminds those who are hearing this passage to remember your story with God. And we don't have time, but it would be really interesting if we had time to go around and kind of listen to everyone's story. And in Israel's case, their relationship with God begins with what I like to call a high-altitude encounter with God. Those moments in our lives when you become convinced that, you know what, I need to follow Jesus, and you are impacted and encounter God in some profound, life-changing way, those high-altitude moments that you have from time to time in a life of faith. And in those moments, God's story, because ultimately the Bible is teaching God's story, it's in when we encounter, when we encounter God in those high altitude moments, our story becomes part of God's story. And that's the foundation for everything else that this passage is teaching. And ultimately, what it shows is this um, release for Israel, freedom for Israel from Egypt wasn't the end of itself. One of the things, one of my pet peeves about all the movies they make about. Um, 
the Exodus from Egypt, whether it's the old Charleston Heston Ten Commandments movie or it's some of the newer animated features, is they spend, really the whole movie is spent on Israel getting out of Egypt. But Exodus, when you read the whole thing, isn't about merely God's liberation from something. Now hear this. Wherever we are in our life, whether we feel like we're this far from God or we're miles from God, God can get you to himself. But that's just the beginning. It's not ultimately about God getting us out of something. It's God unleashing us into and for his purposes. Do you hear the difference? So often we spend the majority of our spiritual lives focusing on getting, allowing God to get us out of something when in fact God simply wants to get us out of something so he can unleash us and launch us into the life that he dreamed about when he made us. And so what we find out is it's not about getting out, it's about getting into relationship with God. So it starts with remembering our story, your story of how, what God got you out of, but recognizing that God got you out of something to bring you to himself so that he can then invite you to live the life of God's dreams. Again, it's rooted in our story but then it's our response. Everything that God has done is rooted in what Jesus has done through his life, his death, his resurrection. But that's not the end of the story. That's simply the beginning. It's then about our response. And if you look at verse 5, if you still have your Bible open, it says, now if you obey me fully. Okay, in verse 4 he said, you remember, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I brought you on eagle's wings and carried you to myself. Remember that. But now here that God says, now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. So in other words, our response to what God's doing, if we want to become and hear God's invitation to a life of God's dreams, it's then about what is our response to what God's done. And that we respond with faithful obedience. And that's where that realignment comes in. When we recognize what God has done, we respond with him simply with our lives. He wants us. He wants us to be in relationship with him. And so we constantly then realign our lives with what Jesus is doing. And then notice the status that we have. And we live in a, a world of status, don't we? You know, sometimes we think that we're, we try to be a classless society in the U.S., but we really aren't. And look what, look what the scriptures say. When you live a life of faithful obedience, when you respond to God's grace by realigning your life with what he's doing, what do we become? Out of all the nations on earth, Israel, God's people, were to be God's treasured possession. That word treasured possession means uh, heirloom, favorite, special treasure. In other words, this is saying that God's people were to be the apple of God's eye, God's favorite. But does that mean that God plays favorites? When I married my wife, Jackie, uh, she had a little brother, a very little brother. Um, my wife was uh, lived in a foster family, and then basically this foster family became her parents. And, but this family had a, a son who's a little bit older than my wife, and then their next child was um, over 20 years younger than their oldest child. So we had one of those surprises, you might say, right? And uh, little Greg was his name. 
Uh, and because his brother was older, his brother already was married and had children, so Greg, the second he was born, was an uncle whose nieces and nephews were older than he was, of course, right? So I always called the little guy Uncle Greg because I thought that was funny. He's you know, his little uncle, so he's Uncle Greg. And, and Uncle Greg, you know, he, he was 20 years difference, and uh, he was a real surprise. And so his mom always told him that he was God's special gift to her, that he was her special baby, uh, that he was special. And you know what? God and Greg believed it. And in fact, when I, when we, after Jack and I married, we'd go and visit her uh, parents. They lived up on the Ohio River in Ohio. We were living in Kentucky at the time. When I first met Greg, Greg had a vocation. It was to make sure that I never did anything wrong at the house, right? So I'm like 22 years old, and Greg's two or three years old. And so, you know, I'm in the morning, I'm getting my coffee, and they weren't quite as casual as you are here. We're able to, you know, eat and drink right here. So I'm, I'm taking my coffee out to watch uh, TV in the morning, and Greg says, Mom! Brian's eating in the living room. Can't do that, right? Or I'm, I'm up, I'm using the bathroom and, you know, I'm finishing and I walk, open the door and Greg's right there. Did you flush the toilet, Brian? Did you wash your hands? You know, what, what does this little kid ask me this stuff? But it was his job to make sure I wasn't messing up. But you see, there's a flip side to this. Uh, Greg wasn't the most well-behaved child that I've ever met, let's say. And so from time to time, his mom and dad would, would take off, and they'd leave Uncle Greg with me uh, to watch. And as soon as the parents left, Uncle Greg would kind of go berserk. He'd be running around. He'd get up on the kitchen table. He's jumping around. He's dragging food out in the living room, making a huge mess. And I would say, Greg, you can't do that. And then the funniest thing happened. You know, Greg's about two or three years old, so he's like, you know, this tall. Points his finger at me the first time I ever tried to correct him. And he goes, Brian... I don't have to listen to you because I'm my mama's baby. Greg knew how much he was loved by his mom. He knew he was his mama's baby. But he leveraged that status to lord it other people, over other people. Friends, hear this. If we want to live the life of God's dreams, you know, it has to be rooted in what God's done. And we remember that. It's got to be rooted in our relationship. And we have to know that we're God's treasured possession. I mean, do you know it? If you follow Jesus, do you know without a shadow of a doubt that you're God's treasured possession? Because we have to know that not so we can go out then and say we're better than everybody or to expect other people to serve us. But we have to know whose we are because what does God call us to become? Servants of everyone. And you can't be a servant unless you know deep down how valuable you really are. So that privilege of relationship that God invites us to is an invitation to the life of God's dreams, which is world-changing service. Or as my friend um, Alex McManus likes to say, and hopefully this will be a real takeaway for everyone, the gospel comes to you on the way to someone else. In other words, for many people, we think of religion as, as going after those high-altitude experiences with God when it's all about us. And there's people that chase around spirituality looking for that emotional high or that spiritual high when, in fact, God wants to encounter us and change our lives so that we can then become his ambassadors into the world. The gospel comes to us on the way to someone else. 
in verse, the end of verse 5 and the end of verse 6 of, of uh, Exodus. Although the whole earth is mine. Stop there for a second. You know, this is talking about calling Israel, calling God's people a small part of the whole. The Bible never loses sight of the whole. Have you ever thought, even thought of the way that the scriptures open up? It's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God never loses focus on the whole world, and neither can we. And we need to understand that our role in God's kingdom is to be part of God's mission to change the world. God isn't calling us just to have a church or to have a community. God is calling us as God's people, the church, to change the world. Not to simply make the world a better place, but to work with God to make a better world. And that's our vocation. Our status is we're God's treasured possession. And then verse 5 and 6 uses that language that we need to unpack. It says, you will be for me out of all the nations, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And, and friends, if you've ever wondered why you were here, if you ever wondered what it means to be a human being, what does God really want for my life? What is God's will for my life? It's right here. It's actually the same for every single person. It's to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What do those words mean? Well, they really mean three things. First, uh, the, let's look at the word priests, kingdom of priests. Now, that doesn't mean that when we're done here that I'm going to give you all a clerical collar and a black shirt and you become priests. I'm not going to pass out pulpits when we're done. Uh, but what do priests do in, in the ancient world? What's a priest? What's the priestly function? A priest or a priestess does what? They connect people with God. God created each one of us with a mission or for a mission, and that mission is to be God's ambassadors to the world. Um, this goes back to creation. Even Paul captures that. If, I don't know if anyone knows 2 Corinthians 5.17. I don't know. Does anyone know what that verse is? Kind of a popular memory verse sometimes, but it might not be too popular if no one knows it. So if, if, he, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation beautiful phrase about what God can do in our lives to recreate us. But what's interesting is a couple verses later, when Paul fleshes out, what's it mean to be a new creation? It means we're God's ambassadors. Mission, an encounter with God, is a call to realign our lives for God's mission. And so our mission then is to connect people with God. But there's a second piece of that. It says a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. There's mission but there's also holiness, and that's another big religious word that we put in our songs and sometimes we say in our prayers and we talk about, but do you really know what holy means or why it's important? Holy means what? To be like God, to reflect God's character in our lives, or an easier way to say it is to become Christ-like. Our, our, our passage from 1 Peter that, that Dave read, at the end of it in verses 11 and 12, it talked about live such good lives among the pagans uh, again, among the outsiders who don't know God, that though they accuse you of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. God calls us to be holy because when we're out trying to be God's ambassadors, Christ's ambassadors, if our lives don't match up the, la the talk that we're talking, people are going to miss the message. It absolutely matters how we live our lives. And so when God calls us to realign, 
He's calling us to realign to his mission of us being his ambassadors, his hands, his feet, his mouthpiece pieces. And he's calling us to realign our lives and allow God to continually transform us and to realign us moment by moment so that in our very lives, every day, more and more, we, we reflect God's character in the world. So when we're at work and people see us, they're supposed to see something about what kind of human being we were supposed to be, a human being that looks like Jesus. And our families, our spouses, our children are supposed to be able to see something about what Jesus can do in a human life by looking at us. In our relationships, we need that. And why do you need that? Because if you're on the right mission, but our lives don't back it up, we give the wrong message. But on the other hand, if we only focus on having our lives transformed, but aren't on God's mission, we're like that tree that falls in a forest that no one ever hears. We need mission, we need holiness, and that last thing, that kingdom of priests, holy nation. Kingdom, nation. It doesn't just say, um, my will for you, each individually, is to be holy and be on a mission. It's not a call for each of us to have our own little peace um, all by ourselves, sort of like the Lone Ranger. And this is the piece that's hard for us. We in the U.S. tend to be very individualistic. I mean, we have iPods, right? So we put all our own music on there. So if you don't like what you're listening to, it's kind of your fault, right? Uh, uh, we have, uh, you know, we can uh, shape things to our liking. Uh, we have my music, my pictures, my books, my house, me, me, me. Um, the scriptures, though, talk about kingdom nation. They have in mind a group of people. So when we have those high-altitude encounters with God, when we find out that we're a treasured possession, we begin to live God's mission and reflect God's character. That's to be done ultimately in a community. Because you need to be able to draw people into this new humanity that God is trying to create that's going to change the whole world. That's ultimately what a church is, Right? I love uh, this location and this place. This, this is, uh, you know, so, so, so often a church is kind of out um, by itself. And so it's kind of a bastion in the wilderness, if you will. God envisions a community living in a larger community in which each part as a whole contributes to the witness that we become and reflect God's character to the world. That's what a church is. So this is perfect. For, this, this church is right in the middle of a um, the world. So God calls us to realign uh, to mission. And if, if we want to uh, say it this way, what is God's will? God's will for us individually and as a church is to become a missional community, a community of persons who follow Jesus that exist to be ambassadors and to reflect God's characters, a missional community that exists to serve the world, proclaim the good news, and model Christ-like life together. And this is affirmed in the New Testament. Jesus' call to realign uh, ends with a, a passage that I saw in the bulletin for the church, one of the core passages that shapes uh, this community, make disciples. And in fact, as soon as Jesus um, said realign, back in Matthew 4, the first thing that he did was call disciples and say, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So Jesus' call to realign is a realignment for mission. The gospel comes to us on the way to someone else. Friends, if you want to live the life of God's dreams, you, you, you can never underestimate 
the impact that you can have on the lives of others. Never, ever underestimate the power of your own influence over others with God living through you. I met last summer a, a retired uh, Army colonel named Shelton Woods. He lives over in the um, Clearwater area. And uh, he's a, a church planner and a pastor. Uh, he's getting to be uh, uh, elderly and retired age now, but he's planted many churches. And I, and I was just talking to him. I wanted to hear his story. And he told me one of the most astonishing conversions that stories I'd ever heard. Uh, he was a, uh, I forget if a colonel commands a company or a battalion, but he was a commander in Vietnam during the Vietnam War. And under his command was a private by the name of John Oliver. Now, John Oliver was uh, self-described by Colonel Wood as a, just a skinny guy, skinnier than a rake, he called him. And Oliver had a problem. I mean, he was a nice guy and people liked him, but the guy simply could not uh, keep his cool under fire. And again, I don't know if I could keep my cool under fire. And so whenever bullets would start flying, Oliver literally lost control of his bodily functions and would get up and just run. And you, you can't do that, right? You, you're the, you had to be there for your buddies when you're, during a, a combat situation. And so the, the, Oliver was actually facing a dishonorable discharge simply because he couldn't do what he was supposed to do, and he always ran. And his mother wrote this letter to Colonel Woods saying, please help my son. He doesn't need to be, he, a, a dishonorable discharge will really hurt him for the rest of his life. Is there anything that you can do? And so Shelton Woods felt sorry for Oliver, because again, Oliver was a nice guy, and he allowed him to become his Jeep driver. So he was away from kind of the front lines. And so and as he did that, he, he told me he began to regret doing that because he found out that Oliver was a Christian. And, and Colonel Woods wasn't. And Oliver was always reading his Bible, was always praying. And as Shelton Woods says, he was always pastoring uh, him with the gospel and the good news. And Shelton Woods didn't want to hear that. But then one fateful day in uh, 1969, uh, Oliver drove... Uh, Colonel Woods to a meeting with the other colonels who were, uh, again, I don't know if it was the company commanders at the time, but they had f six colonels gathered together in one place for a strategy meeting about what, how they were going to carry on the, 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 the war effort. And while Oliver was there and the six colonels were pretty close together um, speaking and, and, uh, and planning, out of the bushes came a Viet Cong guerrilla, and he was holding a, um, a satchel charge. And the guy runs in, he's kind of a suicide bomber, runs in and throws himself in the middle of these six colonels. Everybody's going to die. Uh, John Oliver, though, for the first time in his life, at least as a soldier, acted. He jumped out of the Jeep, ran right after the Viet Cong soldier, and jumped and covered this, this, this uh, combatant with his own body. And when the bomb blew up, it killed him instantly. But the six colonels lived. Not a single one of those colonels uh, was a Christian. But within a week, not a single one of those colonels was a non-Christian. And in fact, those six men whose lives were spared because of one moment when a, a cowardly private on the verge of dishonorable discharge, when he gave his life, the words that he had been speaking to Colonel Woods resonated in Colonel Woods' life, and he gave his life to Jesus, and those, six, or those five other colonels did too. And this day, these guys are all retired now, but every single one of those men went on to plant churches and reach hundreds, if not thousands, of people for the gospel, all because, at a moment, never underestimate the power 
of your influence, John Oliver acted and gave his life. Now, God probably won't be calling us to give our lives. It could. But God calls us to have that kind of world-changing influence. In fact, I don't know, does anybody here consider themselves kind of shy? You know, I'll raise my hand. I am. I know. I don't like to be around crowds and stuff, you know. But here's good news. You know, sociologists have done these studies on interpersonal relationships and influence, and they, find, they found out that even the shyest persons among us, and I'll count myself there, over the course of a lifetime will influence 10,000 other human beings. Did you hear that? That means every single person in this room, over the course of a lifetime through your web of relationships, will reach 10,000 people, which begs the question, with what are we reaching them? The gospel comes to you on the way to someone else. Never, ever underestimate the power of, of the influence of your life when we allow ourselves to hear Jesus' call to follow him and to continually align or realign our lives with what he's trying to do in the world. The gospel comes to you on the way to someone else. So what does it mean to be a missional community that reflects God's character to the world, that preaches the gospel and embodies uh, Christ's life together? Let me close with a couple questions. If God calls us to be his ambassadors, then each one of us, when we think about that influence, needs to answer a, a simple question. Who is my mission? Now, the easy religious answer is what? Everybody. But when we say everybody, I would suggest that probably means you're reaching nobody. Who is my mission? Whose face do you see when you ask that question? Who do you work with? Who are your neighbors? Who do you buy your gasoline from? What stores do you go to? Who is my mission? And how does my life, a, a, a way for the gospel to move through me into these other persons? Who is my mission? God's will for our lives and the life of God's dreams also means that we're holy, which means the second question. What kind of a person do I need to become to fulfill that mission? What, kind, what sort of person do I need to be or become to be Jesus' ambassadors in a way that influences people towards the cross and not away from it? How do we need to realign our lives to that? And then the last thing, as a community, how do we as a community here at Melbourne Community Church, how do we need to align or realign our corporate life together to become the sort of community that God dreams about as a, as a new humanity that can reach and represent him before the world? Are you ready? Are we ready for realignment? Jesus came and said, realign your lives with what God's doing because that great thing that the world has been waiting for has come in Jesus. Friends, the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, that good news is the answer. And if you're ready to live that life that you were created to live, if you want to be the person that God dreamed about when he made you in your mother's womb, Remember your story.
hear God's invitation to move from that initial encounter into relationship with him. Embrace your vocation. Realign your life today. Because God is still looking for heroes and heroines, women and men who will give themselves fully to what God is trying to do in the world. Because God is about transforming lives, and it begins with us realigning our lives with what he's doing. Let's pray together. God, we hear your message that the gospel comes to us on the way to someone else. And as we search our own beings and and think about what it means to be a person of your dreams, as we think about what it means to be the person and persons that you created each one of us to be, we hear your questions. Who is my mission? What would my life look like if I gave my life for that mission? What sort of a person, Lord, do I need to become to truly be your ambassador in the world and to be a person of influence? And God, help us to dream together of what we as a community need to become, to become a community of your dreams. Lord, we, hear, we still hear Jesus calling us yet this morning, align and realign. The time of salvation is now. It's in me. Lord, may it begin with a spark inside of each one of us and allow, Lord, our spark to grow into a flame together and allow each of us to get us individually and corporately to realign around your mission and to become the people that you desperately need us to become to advance your purposes and your will in the world today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.